So, who are we canceling today? Political correctness run amok. Political correctness? What, what are you, from the 90s? As a matter of fact, I am. And the lefties at Oberlin are at it again. I mean, you could just, like, be a little more thoughtful about your language. No, no, I refuse. I am being silenced. Okay, then. Hey, everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me, Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic around cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. Caitlin, I was really excited to see that Richard Dawkins got canceled. He lost his Humanist of the Year award from the American Humanist Association after he tweeted something pretty transphobic. And, you know, I think it's notable that we canceled him our last episode, and maybe this shows the great power that we wield as Cancel Me Daddy. This is the first time that I can tell that one of our out-of-context cancellations just immediately transferred into an actual cancellation. It's so funny to me. <laughs> I also like like to see people actually facing consequences for transphobia because that's one of those mm-hmm. things that usually just like gets a pass and no one cares that much about. And so it's like really, I think, powerful to see someone take a stand. Um, so I'm just really proud that that we canceled Richard Dawkins. We have so much power. It's great. And to be clear, like he's not actually canceled. It's just one association decided that uh, he wasn't living up to the ideals of their organization. And so they took away an honor of his, which is their fair, like free speech right to do so. Yeah, I just I just want to be drunk with power. <laughs> And of course, we're going to have our shameless plug right now. (laughs) So last week we talked about just a hideously hilarious review that we got complaining about our vocal fry. And our listeners stepped to the plate and helped us balance it out. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So we got a lot of really lovely reviews. Keep them coming in. And there was one in particular that made me scream in a good way. It said, I love your pod. It's so incredibly thoughtful and funny. Personally, I wish there was even more vocal fry and even more up talk at the end of sentences. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like the way I read that, Caitlin? Yes. Thank you for everyone who appreciates our vocal fry and up talk. There will definitely be more of that in our show. Yeah, it's just, you know, every review helps us get noticed. And obviously, uh, if you like what we're doing with the show, you can check out our Patreon, where we have a bunch of really cool rewards. Our Discord is just popping, I think, beyond anything that I ever expected. Oh, my Lord, yeah. uh, It almost runs itself. There's a lot of people that just chat amongst each other, which is great. Yeah, and I'm really excited to get to today's episode and share it with everyone. We have a very special guest, the one and only Michael Hobbs. He's just a delight to speak with and um, has been doing a a lot of really interesting work in sort of the area that our show covers. So we're very excited to have him on. And you might know him from his hit podcast, You're Wrong About, or Maintenance Phase. And lately, he's been delving into issues around cancel culture. He just released an episode about PC culture, which we sort of referenced at the top with our bit. But um, 
yeah, we wanted to have him on because there are a ton of parallels between, you know, the stuff that he's working on now and our show. We're really excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. I'm we're both scholars of this like very sad little subject of cancel culture. <laughs> oh my god, please don't put that on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin Burns, scholar of cancel culture. <laughs> No one is a deliberate scholar. It's like going to Denny's. Like, nobody plans on it. You just end up there. And it's like... Um, you know how there's always, like, two Denny's yeah. in every city? There's the good one yeah. and the bad one. I think this one's this the, is bad the bad one. one. <laughs> uh, so for those of you who don't know, Michael is co-host of a podcast called You're Wrong About. And their most recent episode, I thought, was a really good distillation of what we know as political correctness run amok. It's like the panic that they had in the 90s. So I'd encourage you all to go check out that episode. And we're very excited to have him on because we think there are a lot of parallels between that time period and the sort of panic over cancel culture that we're seeing today. I also think that there are lots of parallels. Yes. So you you said before that like researching this episode of yours is sort of a radicalizing experience for you. Can you Tell us what you mean by that. Well, I think it's very hard to see the historical strains in whatever's going on now, especially because, you know, Twitter is so sort of dopamine hit, whatever today's outrage is. There's these little, I mean, cancel culture, the kinds of cases that you document on this show are such a perfect example of, you know, we freak out about Dr. Seuss for an entire week and then we don't talk about it again. And then like three years later, somebody's like, do you guys remember when we all freaked out about Dr. Seuss for like a week? And we're like, oh yeah, I guess we did. They're like these weird little snackable kinds of ways of consuming news. We're just this outrage cycle. And then we move on very quickly to the next outrage. And the previous outrage leaves no footprint whatsoever. And so what happens when you look back at these things is you realize just they're word for word the exact same thing. So when I started researching the political correctness panic of the 1990s, which really exploded in sort of 1990, 1991, but the same kinds of panicked cover stories that we see now about cancel culture, you know, it's out of control. These college kids, they're asking for all this unreasonable stuff, blah, blah, blah. You start reading these articles and you're like, oh, wait, it's literally the same thing. I mean, word for word, the same arguments, word for word, the same sort of disingenuousness, the kinds of journalistic techniques that you see where you're plucking these extremely low stakes anecdotes out of nowhere and like zooming in on them and spending like, you know, 8, 10, 12 paragraphs on like a single professor who canceled a class because a student complained. And like, it's literally the same stuff. So what was radicalizing about it was partly just like I knew it was going to be parallel, but I didn't know that it would just be word for word the same thing. So what you're saying is is there's a short line between, oh, what was the college that you mentioned? Um, Oh, Oberlin, Antioch, Swarthmore. It's always the same, like eight campuses. Yeah. So there's a short line between Oberlin and like Brearley is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, this is the the same panic that we've been having. It's always these tiny... You know, oftentimes elite, very small, very tiny footprint kind of rarefied institutions where conservatives can claim that they are being discriminated against. I mean, so much of this comes from the conservative victimization complex, which is very interesting because it happens at the same time that a lot of conservatives were writing books explicitly decrying the victim industrial complex, right? That lefties, Mm -hmm. you know, women are always complaining about sexual harassment and racial minorities are always complaining about discrimination. Like there's this culture of victimhood. But of course, they used the critique of the culture of victimhood on the left to create 
a culture of victimhood on the right. Mm. And the problem is, if you actually look at the statistics, it's pretty hard to make the case that conservatives, like white middle-aged conservatives, are discriminated against in American life. So what do you do? You have to look around at these sort of tiny little sectors of American life where you can make this argument. And it turns out the only places where you can make that argument are really, you know, tiny liberal arts colleges at, you know, Smith College and Swarthmore and Oberlin and these places. And you can, you know, if, if you start dredging deep enough into the muck, you can find anecdotes, right? You can find teachers that were fired after a student complained, or you can find somebody who has some sort of free speech complaint or a speaker that was deplatformed. I mean, there's enough people at these liberal arts colleges that if you just surveil them closely enough, you'll come up with anecdotes that you can use to claim conservative victimhood. And that creates a narrative that conservatives are being victimized in the culture at large, which simply isn't true. But there's just this drive to find the only sectors of American life where you can claim that. And I think since the 1990s, we've then seen that move to places like social media and these kind of elementary and middle and high schools where you're now seeing like, oh, it's, it's another sector where I can pretend that conservatives aren't safe in American life. And that's, that's really what the drive is, is just finding those places and then making them seem more important than they are. I was thinking about this as well. And, you know, one thing that feels maybe a little bit different about now as opposed to the 90s is racism and homophobia and transphobia and all these things that, you know, um, the right the right expresses, right, that they're like, oh, political correctness, like those things are getting less and less, less and less appropriate, less and less okay to say. And so I think they're, I was thinking that like what's different about now is that there has been a little bit of a culture shift, but like Republicans aren't necessarily being victimized. But I really wanted to hear like what your thoughts about that were. Well, I think one of the very smart things that conservatives started doing in the 1980s and the 1990s is they basically flipped their position on free speech. That throughout the 60s and 70s, they were actually trying to shut down dissent on campus. There were a lot of attempts to make student protests against Vietnam illegal. So they were quite explicitly against free speech. And then in the 80s and 90s, once there started to be these hate speech codes and colleges started saying, uh, you actually can't call other people racial slurs, like you can get expelled for that. Then conservatives discovered that, oh, wait, we can make this a free speech issue, that it's not about, oh, it's not about, I want to say racial slurs. Like, I would never think about saying racial slurs. It's just this kid that you expelled for saying a racial slur. I'm coming to his defense because I'm concerned about free speech, right? And this, mm -hmm. this became something that started showing up in conservative journals. This was a huge through line in the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court has said, you know, it's speech for the Boy Scouts to be able to fire gay scout leaders. That's a part of their speech. That's their free expression. And so we have to let them discriminate against gay people because otherwise we'd be shutting down their free speech. This was an argument that conservatives discovered around this time. And it's only become more and more and more central to the conservative messaging and sort of the conservative culture war apparatus is it's not about, you know, that I really think that black people have lower IQs than white people. It's just, I think you should be able to ask the question, right? So they've, they've managed to rebrand all of this miserable speech as a free speech issue. And very importantly, they've gotten liberals to go along with that. So a huge part of this is the sort of laundering of these arguments into the mainstream and reformulating them in ways that the sort of, you know, the New York Times, New York Magazine, Atlantic, the sort of establishment liberal media will repeat and will reinforce their framing of these issues, which is what they've gotten better and better at. 
Sorry, I'm like depressing. I'm depressing the shit out of you already. Sorry. This is, this is what I'm like as a person. I'm sorry. No, we both did the same. I want to ask a question. Lip smack. So I asked the last question. You can go, Caitlin. So why do you think that they've had success in drawing liberals onto their side of this argument or these arguments? I think there's a couple things. I think, first of all, especially liberal journalists are pretty sensitive to free speech debates. Because we're journalists, we learn about it in journalism school. It's something that we all take really seriously. So when you hear like there's a free speech debate on whatever Antioch campus or something, you're like, oh, a free speech debate. That's quite interesting, right? And we like finding these sort of philosophical underthreads of these kind of small, low stakes anecdotes. Like we enjoy finding those, like that's a lot of what journalism is. I think there's also the fact that a lot of journalists went to these kind of rarefied institutions. I think people that went to Oberlin and Harvard and Yale and all these kind of liberal arts schools are wildly overrepresented in journalism, which is its own sort of separate and larger problem that there's not a lot of diversity of like the kinds of schools. Like there's not a lot of people that went to community college working at national publications. Like I think that's a huge problem. So they're, they're also attuned to that, I think, disproportionately. And I think that you've covered this on this show. There's this very consistent drive to sort of find the nobility underneath these, like, oftentimes very just, like, rank, you know, transphobic, racist, homophobic concerns of Republicans. It's like the establishment media often finds ways of making those kind of more justifiable than they are. I mean, this was this was the hillbilly elegy project, right? It's mm-hmm. like, no, no, we have to understand these people before we condemn them. And so I think a lot of that was going on, like kind of kind of trying to understand the deeper undercurrents. This is something that the right-wing media does not do at all. It's not like, let's understand the leftist college students. It's like, these people suck. Yeah. But I think establishment media is less likely to do that. I also think in general, sort of center-left people, the kinds of people that work at these magazines that were publishing all these panic stories about political correctness, I think they also kind of like punching left. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. this this idea that there's people on college campuses who are really annoying and they're going to scold you about your language and they're protesting about these things that don't really matter. I mean, on some level, that's kind of true. I think that that's sort of what 19-year-olds do. Like, I was insufferable when I was 19. <laughs> Most 19-year-olds now are insufferable. It happens, right? I was deeply depressed as a 19-year-old. <laughs> Okay, so less less annoying and more <laughs> annoying of yourself, yes. <laughs> but I think that if you're a sort of a center-left person, and especially if you're getting older and you're finding it more difficult to sort of understand the new social mores of 19-year-olds now, and you think that the stuff that they're complaining about is really silly, there's a way that you can sort of start to cast that as a national crisis. That I think one of the biggest problems that we've had in this is not just that, like, okay, there's some kids in Oberlin and, like, they're super annoying and that's about it. Like that's that's not really a news story, but the idea that sort of they they represent an ideology that's taking over the United States. I think it's very easy for journalists, especially if you're somebody like on Twitter or you're getting kind of annoying emails complaining about your word usage or something, to cast that as like there's there's a, a bigger you know iceberg of McCarthyism just underneath this. I think a lot of this actually does come from the sort of personal grudges and the feelings of annoyance by center-left journalists at constantly being scolded by people to their left. Mm, That's a good point. And thank you for mentioning community college uh, graduates earlier as as a a community college graduate myself. Um, I do agree. Me too. North Seattle Community College. Yes. Holyoke Community College in Massachusetts. Yeah, right up the road from Smith. So it's, you know, it's woke adjacent. (laughs) (laughs) You're almost part of the problem, but not quite. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but you're right. It's always these like very small, very elite colleges. And like I made the point on Twitter this week where I was like, who cares about this? Like, does like a steel worker in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania actually care what's happening at Oberlin or or freaking Brearley? I, like, I never heard of Brearley. I don't want to know what it is. So, like, people tried to explain it on Twitter. I'm like, please stop explaining. There's no reason for me to know about this at all. Like, do people actually care about this? I don't. I guess I'm not seeing the connect there. That's what's so fascinating to me about the parallel with the 1990s is that in the 1990s, it was exactly the same thing in that there was a wave of cover stories in Newsweek and Time and New York Magazine and The Atlantic about sort of over political correctness on college campuses at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, I read all of the ones that I could find and you don't find a single statistic in any of them. Mm. There's not even like an attempt to be like polling data indicates today's college students, blah, blah, blah. They don't even try. Yeah. It's literally just a series of anecdotes. And most of the anecdotes are things like one of them was that, you know, Stanford changed its graduation requirements. It used to be something called like Western culture. And you'd read all these, you know, canonical Western authors. And then they expanded it. So now you're reading texts from Africa and the Middle East and Asia. And that's it. That's the whole story. <laughs> like, that was it. And this became like a weeks-long national controversy that Stanford was changing its graduation requirements. And like, it's a private school. You can just not go to Stanford. Like, if you think that those requirements mm-hmm. are silly, you can like see them in the little course packet that they send you and be like, okay, I'm going to go to UC Berkeley. Like, there's there's no stakes in this at all. Everything yeah. is completely discretionary. And then you look at the controversies that we're having now. And it's word for word the same thing. And it's like, it's a private school. If you think that that's a silly thing to teach children, don't send your kids there. Like, I, 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 this is not compulsory. This is not, there's, there's no sense. There's no even attempt to make the case that this is, you know, sweeping the nation and kids are being indoctrinated. It's literally just like these tiny little bubbles that even if the stories are true, which they almost never are, it's like, who cares? A private school is doing something that you think is silly. There's thousands of private schools in the country. Like half of them are doing at least one silly thing at any given time. Why am I hearing about this? Right. Well, and I'd love to hear about all the private schools teaching creationism, right? <laughs> and like anti-evolution stuff and like anti-science yes. information to kids. And we also, we have very good data that like abstinence-only education increases teen mm-hmm. pregnancy rates like th- you can actually make a statistical case that those courses which are very widespread throughout the country are having material harms amen i'm not seeing any even like attempt to make the case that getting diversity training in the ninth grade is having any harm yeah. it's just like no no i don't like it like that's what all of it comes back to just i don't like that they're doing this yeah, and you see too, like um, Tennessee passed a bill this week where they literally are requiring schools to notify parents 30 days in advance before an LGBT topic or person can be discussed in a class. Yeah. Yes. And that to me is a more serious threat to free speech than anything that yeah. anybody's ever written about on Substack. <laughs> That's a straightforward, like a straightforward First Amendment issue. Right. Like throughout the country, we have these straightforward restrictions of speech. And then we also are supposed to see them as somehow equivalent with like one school gave a training that was not even mandatory or something like that. And it's like, why would we even be talking about this and drawing these equivalencies? They're not the same. Oh, it makes me want to scream. <laughs> a little bit. As the show is wont to do. In your episode about political correctness, you talked about how, you know, you looked at the coverage of The New York Times 
1991 and found that there were 30 stories about political correctness and only one was kind of pushing back on the idea of political correctness coming too far. (sighs) And I'm wondering, you know, what you're seeing in terms of that and kind of how that compares to the conversation in the media that we're having around cancel culture today. I think it's so similar in that as a journalist, you're supposed to hear from both sides and you're supposed to take this tone of objectivity. But then as soon as it comes to these kinds of stories about sophomores being ludicrous at Oberlin or whatever it is, they (laughs) drop that completely. And it's just like, oh, we're just going to publish an article with descriptions from like aggrieved conservatives with no obligation to like check with their teachers, check with other students, find out maybe are there other different problems on Smith College campus than like the rapping librarian who got fired. Like the the journalistic standards are completely different when we get to these sort of moral panics. And this is something that was so striking to me about the 1990s political correctness moral panic is it's actually a pretty big story that conservatives are trying to turn this nothing burger into a national crisis. Like, you could have written a pretty good cover story about that. Like, hey, gang, there's no evidence for this, and yet conservatives are trying to make it a thing. And yet, basically nobody wrote that cover story. Of all the magazines that I looked at throughout the 90s, the only one I could find was one article in Mother Jones that was like 1,500 or 2,000 words. Like, not even a cover story. Just like, uh, this PC thing isn't real, by the way. You know, The Atlantic, The New York Times, New York Magazine, all these other institutions really felt no obligation to do any basic fact checking of like, is this a real thing or should we maybe revisit this and maybe we're getting worked a little bit? Like, Mm -hmm. I still cannot get over that The Atlantic published a cover story by Dinesh D'Souza where they just like, it's not clear what sort of fact checking went on. They just published a bunch of claims from his extremely poorly researched book and put it on the cover and just like, here's a guy, no ax to grind, no reason we would like warn you that this guy's like very obviously a conservative who's like trying to launder these talking points into the mainstream. No disclaimer, nothing whatsoever. Just like, oh, here's an article. Here's a national crisis. It's it's baffling. Well, I can believe that that would come up in the Atlantic uh, based on some other things that they have published. But that is fair. Yeah. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> and they never did that again. <laughs> yeah, I think my follow-up on that is, are you seeing more pieces nowadays pushing back against cancel culture than you saw back then pushing back against the panic over PC culture? Yes. Like, I have very complicated thoughts on social media as an institution generally. But I think that the biggest difference between now and then is that social media exists. Mm -hmm. And there's a much wider range of viewpoints that get heard. Like, somebody can do a viral thread pointing out the fact that, like, hey, this article has no sources in it. It only comes from one person. Like, it's easier to push back on these things in real time, which is really important. And also, (laughs) one of the things I love is that you can have people from these schools – pushing back on these narratives, right? That if you have some allegedly ridiculous thing that happens at Oberlin, well, people at Oberlin are on social media and they can very easily be like, "Uh, I was in the cafeteria that day and it's not being described accurately. So that's one of the only encouraging signs is that you can't get away with the kinds of just outright fabrication that you saw in the 1990s. People will notice and people will push back. Mm. The problem is oftentimes that pushback is sort of relegated to social media. So something might get super duper debunked on Twitter, 
but that doesn't necessarily sort of trickle upward into the mainstream media. Like, New York Times is not going to do a follow-up article saying, like, oh, the thing we told you about Smith College last week, <laughs> turns out it's more complicated. Like, that's that's still very rare that that happens. Yeah. So the pushback exists, but we're not seeing the sort of the equivalent platforming of the pushback. If only Cancel Me Daddy existed in the 90s, we could have been... <laughs> I know. We could have been polit- politically correct me, Daddy. <laughs> if only we had some, like, debunky podcasts in the 90s. <gasps> Can we put that on a t-shirt? <laughs> with like 90s font Mm, might cancel that idea might cancel that idea oh my god are you canceling me how dare you my free speech (laughs) indoctrination so i just think that like what you said was really interesting around social media it's like really this double-edged sword and that like both when there's disinformation being spread there's actually like a check to it in ways that there weren't before but also disinformation and misinformation spread so much faster and has such a wider reach and this this weird weird balance that i'm not sure what to do about that these are the nature of my complicated feelings on social media that you know you could make the argument that it's made us all worse off you could make the argument that it's made us all better off i mean there's there's all of these facets to it that it's given so much more voice to especially marginalized communities that you know if you're saying like you should be able to say racial slurs on campus you'll have people like from those communities being like uh why like, why is that important to you? Like, I think that that's actually really important as, you know, a driver of the whole cancel culture panic, especially that you now have people that are being held to a standard of their actual audiences and like groups to which they are now accountable that they weren't mm. before. So that's one of the upsides. But then the downside, of course, is that like you can just say stuff <laughs> like on social media. You can mm-hmm. say anything and it will travel around the world while the debunking is putting its shoes on. So, like, this is the information environment is in some ways better and in some ways worse. So, one of the things that we talk about frequently on the show is uh, we invented a little term called uh, the cancel culture grift economy. Yes. Where it's seemingly somebody will get canceled or very obviously try to get canceled for something and then sort of reap the benefits of the fallout from it. So, you know, you mentioned the Smith professor, she ended up doing a GoFundMe for like a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, we see these massive Patreons for these other people who quote unquote chronicle the decays of cancel culture. Is that a fairly recent development or did you see that in the 90s as well? I think actually that's also an outcropping of social media. You didn't have the cancellation process that we have now. I think quote unquote being canceled is much better thought of as a process than as an event Mm. because there's the initial sort of cancellation, like this outpouring of criticism on social media, but then there's the critics of the critics and there's the critics of the critics of the critics. And it becomes a sort of echoing thing where if you look through cases where people have actually been quote unquote canceled, it's actually pretty rare for somebody to just, you know, disappear or for somebody to have their livelihood completely ruined. Oftentimes what happens is they lose standing with one group and they gain standing with another. Mm. And that doesn't always sort of even out. Like some people who sort of lose a high paying salary with one group then sort of become these like right wing grifters and have like a slightly lower salary. So like it, it does have an impact. But you have this sort of this weird staged process where any time sort of a lot of attention is guided toward you, 
that becomes negative attention, but it also becomes positive attention. Mm -hmm. So I've actually been for research for our upcoming cancel culture episode. I've been interviewing a bunch of people who were quote unquote canceled. And they said that like there's these avalanches of hatred. Like it's, it's awful to go through. And all of them have said like, I wouldn't do it again. Right. Like if you're getting piled on for like one silly tweet or an article that you wrote or something, people say like, I wouldn't do it again. It's awful. But amidst all of this awful abuse, you also have job offers and people will pay for your GoFundMe and people will want you on their podcast and it gives you a sort of qualification to write freelance pitches. And again, I don't want to minimize what happened, but I think that the sort of the process of cancellation often is this weird seesaw that goes back and forth of offending one group, but then it increases your standing with another group. And that's, I think, to finally return to your question, I think that that's a stronger process on the right. Mm -hmm. I think that it's almost impossible for a right-wing person to really be canceled Mm -hmm. by the left because so much of conservative ideology now is sort of lionizing people who piss off the libs. You know, offending liberals and sort of trolling liberals is really seen Mm -hmm. as a virtue. So almost anybody who does something that pisses off liberals is going to get sort of sucked into this right-wing machine, and then they're going to get speaking slots, they're going to get movie deals. I mean, we're seeing this with Gina Carano now, this actress who made these like transphobic tweets and anti-Semitic tweets. She's now become like this figure of virtue on the right. And it's like, she's been canceled. We must support her. We have to save her. And, you know, this is what happened with Dr. Seuss, too. We have to buy all of his books because now he's canceled. I think that this, this happens at sort of different scales. But in general, it's like the same sort of thing in that the right loves to scoop up people that have pissed off liberals. Do you think that the table was set for this dynamic, though, back in the 90s when you saw conservatives really start shifting into the political correctness panic. Like, do you think that those steps that were taken back then to highlight all of these stupid little annoying anecdotes as like proof of like an illiberal left, do you think that sort of set the table for what we're seeing today? Yes. The celebration of people who are canceled, or like you said, trolling liberals being seen as a virtue? Yeah. One thing that happened in the 90s that is really important, and I don't think we really noticed it happening at the time, was the creation of this archetype of the sort of easily offended, censorious liberal who, if you say Merry Christmas to somebody who's an atheist, they're going to shout at you or they're going to sue you or they're you know completely going to melt down. Or, you know, if you say, like, do you have a girlfriend to like a gay guy? He's going to be like, oh, how dare you? My partner is male. And they're going to completely freak out. Like these people don't really exist mm-hmm. in large numbers. But this archetype of the sort of member of a minority group who is oversensitive and is just ready to like lash out or have a total meltdown at the slightest pushback has become like more and more central to almost all of these conservative culture war critiques like this was behind the war on Christmas thing. This is behind the sort of microaggressions and trigger warnings thing, which are extremely minor Mm -hmm. issues, but they've turned them into this sort of hegemonic thing on college campuses. Like you have to give trigger warnings or else people will freak out. If you do a microaggression, you know, somebody's going to come after you and throw you in jail. They have to sort of build up this archetype of the easily offended liberal and also increase the extent to which those liberals, like those oversensitive college lefties are Mm. powerful, right? That like I have powerful enemies and people are going to come after me if I, you know, make a microaggression against somebody or something. Like the political correctness panic happened before Mm -hmm. Fox News and before social media and even really before like conservative talk radio. 
And all of those things have just contributed to this idea that, you know, there are enemies of conservatives everywhere and they're constantly trying to, you know, throw you in the gulag for misgendering somebody or like whatever, you know, whatever thing that they think is like this hegemonic complaint of the left. Like that's just become more and more central to them. And I think the political correctness panic is really the creation of that archetype. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned misgendering because we see that, you know, nowadays too. And it's become sort of a meme in trans Twitter that the right only has one joke and it's how dare you assume my gender or yeah. Oh my God. Or the attack helicopter thing. Jesus Christ. The attack helicopter thing. It's like, it's one joke. It's all they do. I think, you know, the rise of Jordan Peterson is important Mm -hmm. in this too, because he essentially got famous by saying they're going to throw you in jail for misgendering Mm -hmm. someone. Right. It can't just be that like people would like you to not misgender them. Like, it can't just be like, this is an ask. People are asking me to be more polite and I don't want to do that. They always have to cast this ask as some sort of punishment if you don't do it. I think the complaints about microaggressions are so interesting because no one is proposing, like, making microaggressions illegal, right? Like, there, there aren't any consequences for microaggressions. It's just an interesting way of looking at the way that systematic marginalization happens and yet you have this attempt, this decade-long attempt now by conservatives to cast this sort of microaggressions thing, like I'm going to be punished if I microaggress somebody. Yeah. And it's just not happening, right? Like there, there aren't any sanctions on the other end of that, but it's very important for them to cast their enemies as like wanting to throw you in jail. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say like as a trans person myself, I've been misgendered before, although it's been a while since this happened in person. And mostly I just feel like shit and I kind of shut down and I'm not social anymore. Like it's an, right. I don't fly into a rage because that would be drawing more attention to this humiliation that I just right. felt. And I feel like that's true for a lot of microaggressions. Um, and I think conservatives know it's true for a lot of microaggressions, right? Yeah. So they want to be able to cause that humiliation without any sort of social consequences behind it. Uh, that's yeah. my feeling, at least on it. And they also, they want to act like you're the one who's the oppressor in that situation because like you're going to sue me if I misgender you, right? Like you want to make it illegal for me to misgender you. Like that's the sort of the subtle claim of a lot of this kind of rhetoric, right? Is that the trans activists are like so powerful and they're coming after you and you can't even make an honest mistake in a classroom anymore. Like this rhetoric is so important to the conservative messaging around this, even though Democrats control Numerous states, like Democrats have trifectas in a lot of states, and nobody has attempted to make misgendering somebody illegal. Like, there is no institutional attempt at this at all. It's just a mean thing to do. (laughs) Like, that's all anybody's really saying. And yet, it's very important for them to act as if there's going to be some sort of consequence at the other end of it. They also, too, they take this and they, they flip it on its head and they use it to justify restricting trans rights. So if you yes. really step back, like, if you want to, like, actually name a gender police, it's the right. Yeah. One of the things that is very important, I mean, you see this in reactionary movements around the world, is that sort of casting the majority group as under attack in some way also gives you an excuse to do these repressive laws as a form mm-hmm. of self-defense. Because we read a Slobodan Milosevic biography for book club this month and like this was his mo too like saying like the serbs are under attack even though there was no actual basis for that whatsoever it's like the majority ethnicity but like we are under attack our culture is under attack da, da, da. and that's how you justify going after these minority ethnicities 
And it's the same thing, you know, you see this in Russia, you see this all over the place. And that's really like, it's a textbook thing to cast these small minority social outgroups as more powerful than they are. And then to cast yourself as engaging in self-defense. Like we have to do to them what they want to do to us, even if there's no evidence that that's actually what they're doing. That's a dark thought. I know that's a dark thought. I'm sorry. It's a dark thought, but I mean, it's what the Republican Party is doing right now. Yeah, I mean, the laws against trans people are like, in like, what are they in response to? Like, what is the point of them? There's no actual like fair there, but they've created this thing that it's like they have to, you know, protect the children. Always a sign that you're not in a moral panic, by the way. Whenever you're talking about protecting children, you're on very firm ground. Always goes well. Right. And it's 100 percent from the anti-gay playbook. Right. Like that was what we were hearing in the 90s about gay people. Yeah. It's, a, it's the same. I mean, it, there's more to it, but it's a lot of the same shit. Yeah. yeah. I don't hate gay people, but I have reasonable concerns. I just don't want them teaching my kids. Like this was Anita Bryant's thing. It was like, we should be nice to gay people. There's gay people in the entertainment industry. I know them. I love the gay people close to me. But I just think when it comes to children, a different standard should apply. And we should be very careful having gay people around our kids. Like it was always couched in this extremely polite language. Because being gay might be a social contagion. Yes, exactly. It might be. And they're coming after your kids, right? And there's reasonable concerns about your kids. Like it's always the same shit. Michael, I'm wondering if there's anything that you learned from talking to the people who had been quote unquote canceled that surprised you. I mean, I think just like how bad it is, like to find yourself under the radar of Mm. one of these like right wing outrage mobs just sounds absolutely horrifying. It almost never happens to white men. It's always somebody from a marginalized background. It's always like they've said something online or they've done something, some perceived social slight. And then you end up sort of in their sights forever. So, like, I was interviewing somebody the other day who was sort of, quote, unquote, canceled in 2018. And, like, she still gets, like, every time she tweets, she'll get some, like, weird Nazis, like, shouting at her. And anytime she does anything, if she gets a new job, if she publishes an article in a different outlet, there will be articles about it on these, like, super-duper right-wing websites. Like, this is very important of just, like, you are under surveillance by these people forever. We could all name, like, seven different female journalists who this has happened to. And it's, like, exactly the same thing. I mean, it. It's happened to me, so... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It happened to me this morning, actually. (laughs) Oh, really? That's the thing, you just become like this weird obsession. I actually, okay, this is kind of a tangent, but we also ended up doing an episode on the Dixie Chicks as like a sort of spiritual in-between to our political correctness and our cancel culture episodes. And one of the things I came across in the literature reading about what happened to the Dixie Chicks in 2003 was there's actually a thing called anti-fandom where people, especially online, form these communities around hating somebody. And this can become like a way for people to bond and really like a hobby, surveilling and harassing and doxing and guiding all kinds of abuse toward a specific person. And this is actually like becoming more prevalent. It's mostly done on the far right. It's in like the deepest, darkest corners of like 4chan or wherever. (laughs) But like this is a real phenomenon. And there's just an absolutely infuriating contrast here where it's like the freak out now is about like left-wing censoriousness and kids on college campuses and deplatforming when the actual problem with online harassment, if you look at online harassment as an institution, it's mostly happening from the right. And it's much more severe to find yourself the target of a right-wing hate mob than a left-wing hate mob. Like it's just much worse. Like the, the levels of doxing, the levels of abuse, the sheer numbers, it's extremely bad. And so the whole cancel culture thing of like, oh, it's really about people getting targeted by online mobs. It's like, we know who's getting targeted by online mobs. We know where the worst abuse is. And like nobody in that sort of set, like the Harper's Letter set, 
appears to be remotely concerned about that. Mm, that's really interesting. So I'm, I'm coming on a cancel culture is fake show to say that cancel culture is real. But I don't, I don't think that that's cancel culture. I don't, I don't think that online harassment and cancel culture are remotely the same thing. And I think what makes it an effective moral panic is that there is a little nugget of truth there. And there's a nugget of sort of real anxieties of living on the internet. And a lot of us are like, ooh, I really hope this doesn't happen to me. And that has, as usual, been twisted by the right into like this national crisis that we all have to worry about and gone completely beyond the actual problem underneath it. Totally. And you said that um, you don't think kind of cancel culture and online harassment are the same thing, which I would agree with that. And I would say that we're not 100% on cancel culture is fake. I think we're on like most of cancel culture is fake, but there's a nugget of it that's 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 worth talking about and actually valuable. But I'm wondering like how you think about what cancel culture actually is versus online harassment. I mean... This is the thing, I think with a lot of these moral panics, it's better to just disentangle everything and just like not use the term at all. I think that the term has so many meanings to so many different people and it's so varied and it's been so twisted at this point that we're better off if we're talking about somebody who's being fired because they were the target of a mob online, we should just say they were fired. Like we don't need to say they were canceled. I don't think that that actually adds anything. Like if we're talking about mass criticism of a public figure, we should just say they're being criticized by lots of people online. Like I think just getting rid of the term cancellation makes all of this so much easier to talk about because it's just too broad. What about my GoFundMe though? <laughs> no, I'm canceling the title of the show. I'm very sorry. Are you canceling us, Michael? <laughs> But I mean, I think one thing that makes it so hard to talk about moral panics is, you know, one of the foundational moral panics in this country is stranger danger, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that there were like dudes in white vans and they were going to kidnap us, blah, blah, blah. And then you look at the numbers and it's like 100 children per year are kidnapped by strangers. It's extremely rare, right? But then during the 80s and 90s, there were these numbers floating around of like a million children disappear. We see this now with this sort of child sex trafficking, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is by saying stranger danger isn't real, it sounds like you're being a total jerk to those hundred families whose children were kidnapped by strangers, right? And it can seem really insensitive. And so the, the most difficult thing about talking about this is to talk about the sort of the fake part of it without necessarily invalidating the very rare but very real actual part of it. And I think that's the hardest thing with cancel culture is that like there are people who have faced like extremely horrible abuse online and offline and in saying cancel culture is fake, that can seem like, eh, they should toughen up or like, oh, why are they complaining? Like, it, it can seem like you're invalidating what they've gone through. But that's, of course, not the project. What, what we're trying to do is sort of deflate the extra air that has been pumped into this concept. But you can do that while still recognizing the fact that, like, being the target of one of these mobs is awful. I think that's a pretty decent comparator to the stranger danger because like I grew up in the 90s so like I was not a college student yet until (laughs) the 2000s thankfully um, or unthankfully depending on your perspective but I remember like the Jimmy Bernardo kidnapping in Pittsfield Massachusetts which was not far from where I grew up and you know there's this guy Lewis Lent who is a very famous kidnapper slash murderer and he was sort of like the example that they always held up as like this is stranger danger and it's it's sort of a parallel with the sort of random anecdotes. Obviously, like a kidnapper murderer is much more serious than like 
a student complaint in Oberlin, but it's the same sort of attention dynamic, right? It's something that can be used for a headline for a story that is about one thing when there's more serious concerns in other areas. Right. So yeah, I think that's a really apt comparison. And there's also, I think, a thing with news gathering too, that at the time it felt like, you know, for every child who for every child whose disappearance ends up in the newspaper, there's a hundred or a thousand that don't end up in the newspaper, right? You can sort of see these anecdotes as like representative of this much larger iceberg of a problem, right? And then when we look back on it, we can say that basically every single child who was kidnapped by a stranger became a news story back then because it is so rare, right? And there is very sort of justifiably a lot of attention paid to these cases when they mm-hmm. happen. And so each one of those children who ended up a news story didn't represent <laughs> a thousand other kids who didn't become news stories. They represented maybe one or two other kids that didn't become news stories, but there was no iceberg underneath these yeah. anecdotes. And I think especially when we talk about sort of people who get fired after criticism from online mobs, sort of by definition, there's only so many online mobs that can form on the internet every day. And also because they're online mobs, they tend to get noticed and they tend to get noticed by journalists and become stories. Mm. So for every real case of somebody who really is sort of targeted for harassment, loses their job for something that they said online, it's not clear to me that those anecdotes are representing hundreds of sort of unseen anecdotes. Mm. It really feels like the vast majority of the times that that happens, it becomes a news story simply by the fact that an online mob is a big thing and a lot of journalists are online and they notice this stuff. Does that sound right or does that sound insensitive? What do you know? No, that's... No, that sounds right. And I think the other thing is that I feel like the journalism industry is more prone to it because it's a little bit more public. And so there are reporters who lose their job if the right wing mob decides that they step out of line because the media is so obsessed with their image. And when other firings happen, whether justified or not, it's less about whether it's justified or not and more about public perception and more about maintaining the image of the corporation or the right. business. Right. Also, journalists, I think that there's this weird thing with the nature of celebrity in the United States, especially with the invention of social media, that there's a lot of sort of confusion over who is and who isn't a public figure. So a lot of the people, journalists online who feel really targeted by this stuff, they are public figures. Like if you are a staff writer for The New York Times, you are a public figure. And so if a random writer for The New York Times tweets out, climate change is fake, they will probably be subject to a lot of criticism and they might actually lose their job. Like that's a really controversial Mm -hmm. statement. But I think that there's been this extension of that to, well, look, anybody can lose their job just for stating a controversial political opinion. But if you're an accountant with 150 followers and you tweet climate change is fake, no one's going to notice that. And there's not interest in what you say because you're not a public figure. And so we saw this around, you know, J.K. Rowling, that there's this massive explosion of anger at her when she comes out with this abysmal essay. And then in the U.K. press, that was extended to like, well, anybody, anybody could be targeted by an online mob just for questioning the hegemony of gender activists, blah, blah, blah. But it's like normal random people who are tweeting, I stand with J.K. Rowling or like trans women aren't women those people are not being fired en masse because those people have 75 followers and nobody cares. So I think that like the distinction between public figures and private individuals is really important in this stuff. There's been this move to extend like anybody could be the target of this when most of the people who are actually targeted by online mobs are public figures. 
And we just have a different standard of behavior for private individuals. It's also deeply ironic because literally this morning, uh, somebody with I heart JK Rowling in their <laughs> profile bio, uh, like doxed a very early transition photo of me that was unflattering because they disagreed with Ugh. something that I wrote, um, which is like the thing that they're supposedly uh, like rallying against. Open debate, you know, just want to have open debate, want to hear, you know, t- tough ideas. Like I'm fine with an open debate, but like. Let's play fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Can you guys just tell me, does that private individuals thing versus public figures thing, does that sound like rude no. or like... It's something that I've been wanting to get into in the show. Okay. I think that journalists often are not aware of their power. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually am 100% aligned with what you just said. And that makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing too that we see is like New York Times... Okay, I'm just going to say your name. Barry Weiss actually has written several pieces. Her anecdotes about quote, online outrage culture come from these accounts with like seven followers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, see, this like this is the type of tweet I'm talking about. And it's literally, if you search for it, it's it's one tweet. Right. Like once that right. she disagreed with and she turned it into a whole piece in the New York Times. And there's an inherent power imbalance to that. Yeah. There's also, I've been, I've been totally obsessed with... Last week, I think, they came out with the Cancelled People database. Yes. Oh, my God. We were going to talk about this, actually, in this show. Which is, like, my favorite thing ever. And I've spent, I've spent like, dozens of hours on it now. I think it's so fascinating. And I, I've sort of been going through it case by case. And what, one of the things that really sticks out to me that's so fascinating is a lot of the cases don't involve online mobs. A yeah. huge number of them are, like, a professor says a racist thing in a lecture. One of his students complains he gets investigated, and then he's forced to resign. Yeah. And it's like, well, there's no online mob there. That's just schools have internal accountability mechanisms and, like, procedures for investigating professors who say yeah. incorrect things in their lectures. Like, that's that's not online mob. Like, that same thing could have happened 50 years ago. That has nothing to do with technology or even really cancellation. That's just, like, an internal process that they set up. So even the distinction, even beyond the distinction between public and private individuals, we have a lot of people who are quote unquote canceled without an online mob forming at all. It's just that's that's the conditions of employment that they have. Yeah. I think that's another like there's so many weird distinctions within this that are just all getting collapsed into this term canceled. And like, again, if you look at that, if you look at that database, there's not that many that are actually the subject of online mobs who are private figures. Mm. Like the the majority of the private individuals, like random people, it's like, a, you know, the CEO of a company or like the head of a high school or like people in positions of power. It's mm-hmm. really not. It's not happening that like random Panera Bread employees are tweeting like, LOL, defund the police and then losing their jobs. Like that's not happening. <laughs> so like... Um, well, actually, not so well, actually, you, um, I do remember there was a trans woman who joked about putting estrogen in Starbucks coffees at, at a conservative oh, yeah. conference, you got fired. It was very clearly a yeah. joke, right? And they got, yeah. they got her fired. But she, to my knowledge, is not on the canceled persons list for some reason. Hmm, wonder why that is. Yeah, I can't imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, I, I think that those cases really do exist. Yeah. But it's just, it's very odd that this has somehow been turned into this national crisis. 
based on this like very small number of cases and a number of cases that don't actually follow under ideological lines, like people being fired for their social media posts. Uh, the last thing I wanted to sort of get into was you mentioned on the show how like coverage of PC culture really had its heyday in the 90s and then 9-11 happened. <laughs> that's so dark, but yes. Uh I remember 9-11, I was a college freshman, so that's my frame of reference on that. And you said that like the PC police stuff kind of went away while we went off to war, and it didn't come back for a while. But during that time, we saw actual free speech threats. You mentioned the Dixie Chicks earlier. Mm-hmm. I, I remember like Freedom Fries is such yeah. an absurd thing, but we literally tried to cancel the French because they would not join us in invading Iraq. Mm-hmm. Like, can, can you talk a little bit about that and sort of why you feel like the, the discourse around political correctness sort of went away and then made a comeback and like what sort of catalyst should people be looking for today where we might see that a similar 9-11 like transition in the discourse yeah it is it is like a really dark sort of sandwich to think about that we had a decade the 90s where conservatives were complaining about mccarthyism and liberals are trying to cancel me and then we get 10 years where they're canceling people and like lots of professors got fired columnists for newspapers got fired a lot of like muslim communities fell under unbelievable surveillance a lot Mm -hmm. of people got arrested and detained without charge i mean all of the stuff that they were saying about college students and mccarthyism in the 90s came true in the 2000s and then once that didn't rile people up anymore and once the wars in afghanistan were like very clearly going poorly they just sort of quietly switched over to complaining about oberlin sophomores again with no sort of acknowledgement of what had happened in between. And we've seen this throughout American history that conservatives, the conservative movement is very comfortable with trying to eradicate ideas that it does not like. We're seeing this now with all of these laws that are passing. We're seeing this with the trans bills. We're seeing this with the free speech. We're seeing this with the voter rights laws, that voting is an extremely important form of speech and they're making it harder. And the conservative movement throughout time has been very comfortable with restricting speech and also complaining about its own minor restrictions on conservative speech. So Mm -hmm. it's just the same, like it's so boring to say, but it's just like the threat is straightforwardly coming from the right. It was coming from the right in the 1990s in the form of defunding colleges. It's straightforwardly Mm -hmm. coming from the right now in these unbelievable laws to ban quote unquote divisive concepts in the classroom like this terrible, like, I I don't know what that means. I don't think any Republican lawmakers know what that means either. Mm -hmm. But the threats to speech are almost always coming from the right in America. And Mm -hmm. they keep trying to make us forget that. And liberal media oftentimes plays along. Mm -hmm. But it's, we've seen the same pattern over and over again since the 1950s. That's great. (laughs) And on a happy note, as usual, just cheering us up, feeling good. I mean, it's grim, but it's so true. And like, we need that context to understand what's going on in this moment. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to be unfair. It's just like, if you look at the 2000s, they were completely fine with speech restrictions. They were completely fine with people being fired. And even now, there's literally lists of like seditious professors who they continue to try to get fired. So even on the same terms that they hold the left to, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, one week They'll be complaining about like a random conservative professor who had to cancel a class. And then the next week, they'll be like Lil Nas X's song should be taken off the radio or like WAP is the worst thing to happen ever. Or like this random professor should be fired. Like they're perfectly fine with quote unquote canceling other people. So 
basically nobody has any content neutral beliefs about the institution of canceling. Yeah. It's just we all want people we don't like to be canceled. And that sort of deep irony can also bring back a lot to 9-11 itself, right? And you saw a lot of the folks who stormed sure. the Capitol, which they claimed was a free speech event uh, in a lot of ways, if you want to interpret things right. very unfairly. Yeah. And then they got put on no-fly <laughs> lists, which was a conservative policy that built from 9-11. And they're right. saying, this is, you're violating my free speech rights. What, I'm not allowed to yeah. protest my government now, and now I can't fly? And it's like, well, it's your law. Like, these are your rules. Yeah, we tried to tell before, you. We were, and now we were pretty up in arms about this like, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for coming on. And Thanks so much. Can you just uh, remind our listeners how they can find you? Yes, I have two podcasts, one called You're Wrong About and one called Maintenance Phase, and they are both available on your telephone. Do you want to get to some out-of-context cancellations? Absolutely. It's my favorite time of the fortnight. <laughs> I was not prepared for you to get all Shakespearean on me. <laughs> Technically, it's Victorian, not Shakespearean. Oh, okay. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you going to cancel me for getting the wrong time period? So one thing that um, one of our listeners wanted us to cancel was needing sleep and needing to do anything other than sleep, which I super feel on a deep level. I want to never have to sleep. And I also don't want to get out of bed. I think it should be canceled. Yeah, let's cancel it. Uh, another listener on the flip side wants to cancel insomnia, which is like the terrifying younger brother of that first one. <laughs> the cancel daddy is going to kick insomnia to the curb. <laughs> done. So done. Mm -mm, not here for it. Um, oh, this one gets me. Uh, someone wanted us to cancel people not standing on the six foot marker. As someone who has been very anxious throughout the pandemic about COVID, I feel that. I feel yeah. that. Please just stand on the six-foot marker, please. Another listener wanted to cancel servers that at everyone more than one announcement per day. I think this is a very specific Discord thing. It It is, and it is also a, a Slack thing. As someone who is in like seven Slacks, my life is chaos. Seven Slacks? Are you kidding me? It's my too God. many. It's too many. Um, I want to do this next one. <laughs> Because do you feel is, a certain way about it? This is one I fully agree with. <laughs> and it's people who criticize a streamer's play in chat, otherwise known as backseating on somebody else's stream. And it's like, you're there to watch and be entertained. Like, if the streamer wants your help, they would ask and probably pay you for it. Otherwise... Like, just watch for enjoyment and make comments and try to be funny, even though most of you are not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was that was cold. That was a burn, Caitlin. That was a burn. But, yeah, don't backseat stream or we're going to cancel you. Yes. Canceled immediately. So we're also canceling pollen, which, uh, you know, I agree with. It's not fun sometimes. Especially this time of year. Yeah, we, we can nix it. So I learned something really interesting, um, which I always do when I go into our Discord. But apparently the issue with the pollination is because 
especially in cities, is because cities only plant male trees. And it's usually because they're cheaper. And those are the trees that have the most pollen. And so if we planted more female trees, female in air quotes, because I'm not sure why we're gendering trees, but... um, But like if we had a mix, right, of these different kinds of trees, the pollen would be less extreme, right? And so maybe this is poor city planning. I don't know enough about tree biology to comment. I know. I didn't either, which is why I Googled before I got on this podcast after our really smart listeners in the Discord informed me about the um, tree pollination problem that it is in most of our major cities. So if you're mad about pollen in an urban area, (laughs) that might be why. There's some sexism against female trees being planted. Someone in our Discord made a really funny joke and said, um, misantry? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash Clyde. And Caitlin Burns. Daniel Peterschmidt made our theme song and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work. Especially the members of our Cancelor Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg and Alice. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! (laughs) 